You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. The literary work of Howard Phillips Lovecraft is dark and macabre. It casts a long shadow in American literature influencing such writers as Rod Serling, Stephen King, Bob Howard, Robert Bloch, and many others. In his stories, he wove a tapestry of mad alien gods and unspeakable horrors and of the insignificance of man and of a mountainous evil that sleeps in the ocean, worshipped by mad cults in dark places, known only as Cthulhu. actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Hello, I'm Blake Smith, the producer and co-host of Monster Talk. Today we're going to flex our leathery wings and fly off into some new territory. Traditionally on Monster Talk, I and my co-hosts, Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno, discuss monsters that are part of folklore and legend. But today, we're going to talk about monsters created by writer H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft was not well known in his lifetime, but his influence grew strong, and in recent years, he attained a great deal of posthumous fame. His work is cerebral and literate. His erudition found no stricture in the pulps where he was published, and to approach his tales without a dictionary would be foolhardy for most. Yet within those multisyllabular and archaic syllables lay tales of terror as visceral as those of any writer in American literature. Today on Monster Talk, we'll talk with two guests regarding Lovecraft's work. First, the well-known Lovecraft scholar Robert M. Price will talk with us about the writer's life and his works. 
And then biologist P.Z. Myers will talk with us about the biological inspiration for Lovecraft's most well-known creation, Cthulhu. Monster Dog. Uh, tonight, uh, we're interviewing Bob Price, a scholar of religion, uh, a member of the Jesus Seminar, a teacher, a regular host of the Point of Inquiry podcast, and a noted scholar of H.P. Lovecraft and his works. And and so those are kind of... Uh, What's the word? They're 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 uh, they're different, <laughs> different uh, specialties that you have there. The, the Lovecraft stuff uh, seems somewhat at odds with the religious studies, maybe. But how did how did you become interested in the works of H.P. Lovecraft? Well, I was, uh, I guess this was back in about 66 or 67, and uh, Lancer Books had just. Uh, I guess on their second printing of the two Lovecraft uh, collections, uh, The Color Out of Space and uh, The Dunwich Horror. And uh, I was in the midst of uh, just bathing in all this great uh, pulp revival in the paperback books, plus uh, new stuff like Tolkien being uh, offered. And I was reading Robert E. Howard and Doc Savage and Lynn Carter and uh, you name it. And then a friend suggested I would really like this. And so I did immediately and i loved the uh the poesque style and our and the more of the uh cthulhu mythology business uh, unfolded in the writings of lovecraft and his buddies the more intriguing it got and uh so i i was i was um uh, deeply into conservative Christianity at the time. Uh, and uh, I was into theology, and eventually I got a doctorate in theology and another in New Testament. Well, the same interests made this very interesting to me, too, because here was Lovecraft f- fabricating a, a myth system uh, and uh, and doing it in texts that uh, required interpretation. So this is the perfect sort of hobby for me. And um, I've always been really Really equally interested in the writing itself and in the uh, the mythology uh, of Lovecraft. So uh, they've uh, it's it's been a seamless thing actually. With uh, now, of course, I understand it all to be mythology and such. So it's even closer. Uh, but I think I always was uh, in touch with uh, the deeply mythological character of all that. And another favorite interest of mine: superhero comic books. Uh, that's raw mythology also, and I uh, love all that stuff. No, I come from a very conservative religious background myself, um, and it's been an interesting transition into a more, uh, uh, I guess the polite thing would just to say liberal <laughs> view. Mm. Uh, did you find that when you were reading Lovecraft's or even Robert E. Howard or that sort of thing, did, did you feel like you were doing something a bit profane? Did you have to cover the book up if you were at school or, you know, the, the covers are kind of lurid sometimes on those books. Well, I seem to remember feeling uh, occasionally that there might be some incompatibility, but on the whole, I don't believe I did. Uh, But there was a time when I just felt like I needed to drop everything else away for a few years. But uh, and I was really into witnessing and uh, the whole thing and uh, I got into InterVarsity Christian Fellowship when I was in college. And I was then instead of uh, out and out fantasy writers, I was reading theologians and such and just loved that. I'm glad I did. But once I decided I just didn't see the cogency of uh, orthodox uh, 
religion anymore, I decided I would take a second look at these old things that had always charmed me and got back into them as well. So, Bob, who was H.P. Lovecraft and how did a writer who's so little recognized by modern readers come to be so well respected by modern writers? Well, he was a uh, a proverbial pulp writer. He he began just writing for himself. Uh, He had read a lot of uh, 18th century literature because he lived in his grandfather's house. Just read the the old books in the library, poetry and prose, cover to cover, top to bottom. And uh, though he he never finished high school, he was self-educated and uh, and deeply so. And uh, he wrote for his own amusement. And when somebody persuaded him to, to um submit a couple of stories to the new magazine Weird Tales. He did so with the letter to the editor saying, now, if you publish these, I don't want a single comma changed. Are you willing to do that? And uh, so the editor kind of laughed, we're told, and said, sure, and uh, I guess kept his promise. And then Lovecraft, um, for years thereafter, would uh, curse himself for compromising his aesthetic standards to appeal to to the audience of the pulps, which he uh, graciously referred to as yaps and nitwits. Uh, And uh, so, uh, and yet he claimed he uh, didn't want to uh, commercialize uh, or alternatively would lament that he couldn't, unlike some of his friends like August Derleth, who was a chameleon and could do either one. Well, uh, there was, he was very, very popular with uh, these young readers in his time. He didn't have to wait for recognition there, though he never made much money out of it. He he couldn't get a book of his stories published during his lifetime, though he came close a couple of times. And um, and then uh, there have been, of course, uh, since his death and the preservation of his work in hardcover by a couple of his uh, pals, August Derleth and Donald Wandry, who founded Arkham House expressly for that purpose. Uh, he's uh, attracted more and more of a cult, though uh, Edmund Wilson was already denouncing the Lovecraft cult uh, in the 40s, I guess it was. But it's just continued to grow. And um, thanks to the work, I would say mainly, of S.T. Joshi, whom I interviewed recently on our Point of Inquiry show, uh, he has uh, become recognized more and more in the literary mainstream. Whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. I guess it's is. Uh, But um, writers, as you say, have always realized this guy's pivotal importance and great gifts and have been influenced by him even when they don't want to admit it. And uh, though many do, and uh, now um, uh, you've got the the critical mainstream taking a second look at him uh, and uh, whole new audiences of uh, young readers who come to him through uh, role-playing games and the like. Uh, And uh, they they know all about his mythology before they've ever even read one of his stories. And uh, some people come to him through uh, the ever-increasing number of Lovecraft-based movies. And there's Lovecraftian rock. And then there are plush Lovecraft monster toys of cuddly Cthulhu and so on. So it's, it's this, uh, this flood of uh, popular interest in Lovecraft that would have completely astounded him had he lived to see it. We talked some about the people who were influenced by him. What about 
about some of his predecessors, uh, such as Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, obviously, Poe plays a lot, a big role in, in Lovecraftian fiction, but what are some of the other lesser-known influences you see in his work? Well, he loved uh, M.R. James, the greatest ghost story writer in the English language, and um, he somewhat like him, though it's hard to, to uh, see specific influence other than a, a few ideas in particular. I don't think the mood or the style is uh, very close to James, but Count Magnus, for instance, is uh, a big influence on the call of Cthulhu, as is uh, Lord Dunsany's uh, house in, or was it a shop, I forget, in Gobi Street. Uh, and a lot of things uh, figured in there. Lovecraft seems to have gotten a lot of his notion of the cosmic outsideness, this mystery impinging upon our own uh, from uh, Algernon Blackwood. And he said that the probably the greatest supernatural story was The Willows by Blackwood. Uh, and he also liked uh, The Wendigo. Uh, well, uh, then he, he just uh, thought uh, the world of Arthur Mackin, who is, I think, possibly the biggest influence on him. Hmm. Once you've read Read uh, the White People, the Great God Pan, and one or two others by Mac, and you've almost read the Dunwich Horror already. And so he's a major influence, especially the idea of the old ones, a surviving banished race from elder times. He, he got that, I think, from Mackin, though he interpreted it as a pantheon of unknown gods and uh, picked that up from Lord Dunsany, uh, the, the Irish baron and fantasist. And uh, in some ways, Dunsany and Poe have always been considered the chief influences on him because his earliest work was very much in the the uh, classical almost biblical style of Lord Dunsany though he came upon it independently and uh, he had already written the white ship uh, considered a Dunsanian tale uh, before he encountered Dunsany's work but then went whole hog for a while in that vein but uh, Poe really claimed him he referred to Poe as my god of fiction uh, but I would say Mackin was was uh, at least as much of an influence. Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, oddly enough, was a, was a big influence on him, as well as John Tain, the science fiction writer. Uh, and uh, yet I find uh, that uh, having gotten into these other authors and, uh, of course, come to appreciate them greatly, when I go back and read Lovecraft and see what he's done, he did successfully just what you always hear writers ought to do, to assimilate influences and make them into something new by kind of artistic alchemy. He sure did that. So most most of the people about, uh, what, mid-late 1800s? Mackin and uh, Blackwood and I believe M.R. James were contemporaries of his. Okay. Uh, Blackwood read The Rats in the Walls and said that it was good, but a little too grossly physical in its horror. Uh, and I don't know if Lovecraft ever knew that, uh, that he had commented on it. But so most of these guys were uh, late 19th, early 20th century, except for Poe, obviously. But uh, he saw Dunsany do a reading in person, for instance. So he he's the only one he met, I believe, out of this, this bunch. But uh, they were pretty much contemporaries. Lovecraft was a remarkable letter writer and correspondent. Was it a conscious decision on his part to build that shared fictional reality that he and other writers could place their works in? 
uh, he didn't initiate the idea as far as I know, but once his friends began to copy him and say, oh, well, I like the Necronomicon, so I've come up with my own book of Ibon. Oh, he loved that, as you can tell from his letters. And they say, oh, yeah, by all means. In fact, I may refer to your thing. And uh, if uh, some like young Robert Block said, uh, here's the story with my grimoire, uh, The Mysteries of the Worm, Lovecraft would say, well, that's good, but let's pep it up a little bit with a Latin uh, title as the original uh, about De Vermis Mysterious and he would really get involved and he like uh, Richard C. writes the Elt Down Shards oh he loved that and so he set about making up this long background story little realizing that C. Wright was working on his own in another story he hadn't shown Lovecraft yet and so we have uh, two completely uh, different accountings of that. Well, he he loved the game once somebody started playing it, and uh, he um, he liked the fact that it would grow up with all these citations, especially insofar as they were somewhat inconsistent because that apes the character of real mythology. It's not all a neat system. So he he just loved it. There are some of his fans that say this is a big mistake. Like if I'm not mistaken, Will Murray and uh, David Schultz and others who are great, great Lovecraft scholars think that this made Lovecraft make kind of a joke of it in some ways and he probably should never have yielded to it. But the result was this uh, this irresistibly fascinating pseudo-religion that uh, many uh, Lovecraft fans find this to be the favorite thing uh, of theirs, their favorite aspect of, of his work, the, the Cthulhu mythos, so-called. Wow. And I was going to move on to Cthulhu. What is the Cthulhu mythos? Uh, well, it's August Derleth's... Um, pretty good uh, attempt at coming up with a title for this. Lovecraft himself called it, uh, tongue-in-cheek, Yag Sathothery, as if it were a religion. And he said, well, uh, Judaism and Christianity are no more valid than my own Yag Sathothery. And uh, he um, he set up this uh, this system of myths whereby there were ancient races unknown to most people who uh, of, of beings that had come to the earth from uh, unimaginable distances of outer space or other dimensions witnessed the creation or the evolution of humanity or in some stories created human beings as a mistake or a joke as he has uh, someone say in at the mountains of madness and uh, it, it was all science fiction basically but he has the poor hapless ignorant humans in in certain Oh, esoteric, degraded cults doing the bidding of these um, these ancient beings now shut away in caverns and so on, communicating by dreams. And these uh, these people are the dregs of society are, are trying to uh, do what they can to release their uh, masters to pillage the earth and so forth or to drag it off into a different dimension, as it says in the Dunwich Horror. And uh, so that the, they're these um, evil but really just sort of stupid and venial humans trying to end the world as we know it and restore the rule of beings who are indifferent to humanity. And uh, and the big horror of this is not just, well, there's King Kong uh, throwing the subway cars around and uh, swatting the, the biplanes off the Empire State Building, physical destruction. You almost don't see that happen uh, in his stories. One or two cases you do. But the, the uh, shocking... 
humbling of the sense of human self-importance. What, what, you mean there were millions of years ago intelligent cephalopods and sea cucumbers with wings who were vastly superior to our intelligence now? Uh, we're the beasts, not them. And that's the really a terrible, humbling insight that he, he communicates, though this seems to be allegorical for Lovecraft's worldview. Of course, he didn't believe there were monsters and such, but he said the very indifference of the universe, uh, this is the humbling and shocking truth that science tells us that uh, people don't want to hear, so they retreat into religion and superstition. So it was a kind of a philosophy that he really did believe using the image, the the vehicle of, of science fiction and uh, the... Uh, a kind of a hoax version of, of religionist priestcraft. And that's where the mythos comes in. It's gods and scriptures, but even in his own stories, it's only the duped fools who think so. So it's a really interesting combination of all these insights. Yeah, it, it seemed to me that the, the mythos itself uh, embodied a kind of cosmic nihilism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It d does It's also informed by the science that was coming out at the time. Am I right in remembering, was he an amateur astronomer? Yeah, when he was a little kid, he was uh, in the observatory and uh, looking out at the heavens and even uh, uh, hectographed, I think, a little uh, Providence Journal of Astronomy and sold it. The kid was a phenomenon, and, and oh, he just was absorbed in the vastness of the cosmos. And I'm sure that was a big influence on his uh, his whole outlook. Cthulhu Mythos reminds me of, of uh, something else. Do you, do you see any parallels between Lovecraft and, for example, L. Ron Hubbard with uh, cults and alien gods and intelligences? Well, from the little I know about uh, the Scientology mythology, it's more – it comes out of more properly called uh, pulp science fiction with the space tyrant and all that stuff. Uh, Lovecraft that, – that would be more like uh, the aspect of Burroughs that Lovecraft didn't care for. And Scientology sounds like it's based on space opera. Uh, much like the Nation of Islam with the uh, the mother plane the ship up in the sky and the evil Dr. Yakub mutating uh, specimens till he got to the blue-eyed white devils, just sort of Saturday afternoon matinee stuff. Uh, and uh, as I understand it, uh, Hubbard took a plausible technique of uh, consciousness uh, raising, uh, the Dianetics thing, and then added this mythology to it to make it into Scientology. And uh, Lovecraft would never have taught a doctrine like that or a method he, uh, or anything. He, he thought people were generally all right as they were. And Religion had a kind of an aesthetic value and to some degree a social control value. But uh, he, he met Hubbard once, by the way. But as far as I know, his only comment was on his brilliant red hair. Uh, but I don't see a whole lot because I think it's uh, Lovecraft didn't his vision, his, his resulting mythology wasn't as trite. And, and I, I suppose also that, that Hubbard, uh, that unlike Hubbard, Lovecraft uh, didn't really expect people to take it seriously. He, yeah, well, he, he was he, highly he, amused when they did. Right, yeah. So uh, he, sometimes. he assumed his readers were smart enough to know this is just fiction. 
but uh, but sometimes they weren't. In fact, a collaborator of his, William Lumley, no relation to the great Brian Lumley today, uh, he was a pal of Lovecraft. He collaborated with him sometime. He would sort of laughingly say in letters to other people, well, old Bill uh, maintains that Smith and Howard and Long and I are really unwitting mouthpieces for elder entities and that Cthulhu, etc., really exist. And so it was already starting then. People would write to him and say, where can I get a copy of the Necronomicon? And he would write back and say, I hate to tell you this, but I made it up. There's no such thing. So it, it, it began immediately that people thought it must be real, and he had to uh, try to disabuse them. I actually saw, I, I believe in the 70s, there was a, a black-covered book that was called the Necronomicon. It was, I think it was a hoax of some sort. Oh, yeah, there are a few of those. Yeah, yeah and, and and I saw that before I ever read Lovecraft. And so when I first read Lovecraft, I thought, well, that's odd. I, I've heard of this book before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got it all out of order. So, Was it a big – did the book look kind of like a high school yearbook? No, this was actually the paperback. Um, and it was um, – it was it, it was in sort of the, the occult section of the bookstore. This was, you know, uh, this would have been in the uh, – probably the late 70s. And I, I really wasn't supposed to be in that section because they had the Satanic Bible and they had this mm. other stuff. And so over here with the occult stuff was a book called the Necronomicon, and um, and it claimed to be you know the writings of Abdullah Uh And but later on, I had heard that that was actually a literary hoax of a sort. I mean, obviously it wasn't the real Necronomicon because, as you say, Lovecraft made it up. So I'm not. Really, I'll look into that and see if I can find the history of that book. That particular one. It's probably Simon's Necronomicon. Uh, it, it, this guy claimed to be a defrocked Eastern monk or something and called himself Simon. And uh, he, what he did basically, it, it was published by uh, Schlangecroft Barnes, I think it was, uh, as a kind of a thing that looked like a big high school yearbook. And then eventually Avon, who published the Satanic Bible, um, published a paperback edition of this that you still see. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's the one. And in it, he claims this is the real Necronomicon, but uh, it, it is real ancient text, but it's it's uh, part of uh, some ancient Sumerian chants with a few mythos names thrown in. Uh, and um, it's, uh, it is a hoax, though. And I, one afternoon years ago, Lynn Carter, S.T. Joshi, and I went to the Magical Child occult bookstore in uh, the village and uh, and Simon was lecturing in the back room on, and uh, these uh, kids were there saying can you use the Necronomicon with your scrying crystal and see the old ones and this guy was up there saying well it might work but I don't know if I'd try it and uh, we were just fuming <laughs> and it was obvious this guy was just pulling Shub Nagurath's wool over their eyes and uh, having a good time about it but uh Oh, man. Did you say there was a publisher called Schlangecraft Barn? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the most horrifying part of it. I'm so stuck on that. I'm sorry. I know. I did the first I immediately thought, and they make great porn as well. Yeah, they should have. Yeah, they may also have, for all I know. <laughs> so who is this Cthulhu character, and why of all of Lovecraft's creations does he rank the fame that he has? Well, he's the star of uh, this story, The Call of Cthulhu, which is one of the first to begin to move toward a, a system in that 
he pieces together documents uh, about this hitherto unknown cult of Cthulhu and uh, eventually discovers a manuscript written by a Norwegian sailor who happened to uh, stumble upon Rilje, the uh, non-Euclidean island in the Pacific where uh, great Cthulhu is imprisoned. And by this time, we know that Cthulhu is some sort of a space alien who ruled the world in the past, but he and his, he was the great high priest of the old ones who might or might not have been like him. And Lovecraft describes him as having a roughly humanoid or ape-like form, a kind of a colossal octopus head, rudimentary wings and claws. And, um, and uh, the uh, he was the high priest of, of the old ones, and they could only exist when the stars seen from the earth were in a situation. And when they moved from that, uh, they would have to go into dormancy. But one day the day would come when they would be alive again on earth. And in the meantime, they were served by these sort of idiot uh, humans. Uh, but it was kept a great secret. You might find them in the Louisiana Bayou. You might find them in, among the Greenland Eskimos or who knows where. Uh, he threw a little theosophy into this. The undying leaders of the cult existed in the mountains of Tibet and such. Well, um, this sailor finds that Rillier has risen from the ocean and great Cthulhu emerges. Uh, the stars are right and uh, he, the guy barely escapes with his life and Cthulhu is this uh, huge lumbering uh, semi-material uh, titan that follows him through the water, uh, but somehow... Uh, must have gone back into dormancy without explanation because the world has not ended. But here's a case where he described the thing, so it's something he didn't with all of his monsters. Uh, and since August Derleth coined the Cthulhu mythos and gave him the centrality, I guess people just liked him the best. There's, like with some of these entities, like Nyarlathotep, he's described in radically different ways. Or Azathoth, the nuclear chaos, is never described and couldn't be. Uh, and uh, Yogg-Sothoth is pictured as a kind of, a, by implication, a huge mountain of eyes and gaping mouths and tentacles and so on. So Cthulhu is the uh, only one you could really easily make toys out of or do cartoons with, and that's been done. Uh, so uh, I guess that's why. I don't really know, because there are about five or six that you could uh, make the star of the show, but he's emerged as number one. It seemed like in some ways he was kind of ahead of his times, for example, envisioning the extraterrestrials with amazing powers and stuff. It struck me, I, I, I don't know whether you would agree or not, but it struck me that without the horror aspect of it, it seems like some of the things I might, that uh, some of the things that he writes about could have been written by New Agey or UFO buffs in the 70s uh, in terms of, you know, visiting alien intelligences and gods looking over us. Well, some of those writers, like uh, whatever the Powell's and Berger or something like that who wrote The Morning of the Magicians big book in France translated into English. They credit Lovecraft with being a pioneer in this kind of thinking. Uh, and he he did precede the Eric Von Daniken ancient astronauts thing. Uh, he he's, Of course he wasn't promoting it as a genuine theory but he, he did try to make it plausible uh, and so that the ancient gods were really misunderstood aliens and uh, so a a lot of people who, and oh, that's not an absurd theory. I don't know how one would prove it, but it's it's not ridiculous. I find it even more amazing that in his phobia of uh, of oh non-white non-Western 
uh, and to some degree, even the female uh, groups, factions of humanity, he was afraid that his uh well they use these these terms logocentric uh, eurocentric phallocentric etc the elite the the not quite dead white males that their cultural dominion was about to be overthrown by with the forces as he saw them of uh, barbarism superstition and irrationality stemming from Southwestern Europe, Africa, Asia, and so on. And uh, he, if you just take the pejorative vocabulary away from it, it's very much what uh, many people think has happened or is happening. And so to some degree, his his insidious cults of rat-faced mongrel hordes and all that, especially the intermarried people like the Innsmouth Deep Ones represented the non-whites and the, the terrible possibility of inter- <laughs> of intermarrying between uh, the, the ethnic horror. groups. So he didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but he, he did see just the kind of world cultural change coming about before a lot of people were talking about it. He didn't like it. But I think he saw it pretty clearly. I thought it didn't. But he married a Jewish woman. But you know, he's kind of uh, not famous. I mean, he 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 gets a lot of negative press for his uh, his uh, anti-Jew attitudes. I haven't actually been able to. I've I've heard he's written some pretty rude stuff along those lines. But you know, except for like the horror of uh, Red Hook, you know, some of that stuff's pretty. I don't know if it was edited down or it just it, it he seems kind of vague about what it is he hates or doesn't like. I I was very mixed about that. In fact, I actually ran into Julius Schwartz. I don't know if you know Julius Schwartz, but uh he, he Julius uh-huh. Schwartz. Yeah, he was, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him once. Yeah, he was he used to be he was Lovecraft's agent for at least mm-hmm. a little while. And I asked him about it cuz he was like the only person I ever got to meet that actually knew Lovecraft. And uh and he said that you know that all the time they'd worked together that he'd heard about that anti-Semitic uh, sort of uh, attitude, but he said Lovecraft never showed it to him, and as far as he knew, the, the woman he had married was Jewish. So that's right. Yeah. It's it's very very. The man's enigmatic to me. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't want to defend him. He was definitely right, right. No, a yeah. racist, but you're right. I mean, I don't want this to sound like oh, some of my best friends belong to inferior races. Uh, right, right. Uh, but he, in fact, he, he, as you say, his wife is Jewish. Sam Loveman, who oh. admired and loved and was a good friend, he was a Jew. And uh, Loveman, uh, years after Lovecraft. Death, I think, in as late as the seventies, uh, heard about this side of Lovecraft and was just flabbergasted and said, "The no good, hypocritical sob." Right, right. Uh, which is unfortunate, but Lovecraft asked for it by the things he wrote. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't in any way want to be an apologist for the man. I like his work separate from that that aspect of his life. I just, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was more confusing and surprising than than an excuse you know what i mean it's just yeah really you know it's not not exactly like the people who you know who are secretly gay and then work really hard to stop gays from having rights but something like that to to mm-hmm. be to to be vocally anti-semitic and write anti-semitically and yet marry and work with jews seems really well it's just it's odd 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess it just means that it was just bad theorizing. Like I know a guy who's a New Testament scholar and in, uh, scholar of Buddhism and just a compassionate, intelligent person, but he's also kind of a Holocaust revisionist. Uh, I'm not a denier exactly, but it's kind of startling to suddenly hear that. And then you just think, well, at least it doesn't seem to permeate the rest of him. Or it's like finding out Heidegger uh, was a Nazi. Uh, he didn't, as far as I know, he didn't remain one uh, when he was writing his famous philosophy, and I don't see how it taints the philosophy, or Gogarten, uh, one of the big uh, dialectical theologians, another Nazi. Uh, it, uh, there, there's a few of those guys, Islamic specialists, uh, biblical scholars who were Zieg Heiling. Uh, you know, maybe they're in hell now, but I don't see how it uh, spoils what they wrote since they didn't actually write about that crap. And I'd say the same with Lovecraft. He just uh, unfortunately had these uh, stupid ideas on some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah the the racism, especially, it, it seems to, it's intellectual laziness in in my mind it, it is what the basis yeah. of it is. You know, using race as an excuse for whatever you're concerned with. Uh, but it seems you know that there, it's hard to get around it from that era. There's, it's a little in a yeah. lot of stuff. But I, I do like his writing. You know. Mm. Uh, Whereas when we're talking about fiction, but let me get get to back to some of this this deeper questions. Here's one for you, Bob. You're you're a famous person for your atheism, and you're also a well known Lovecraft scholar. And S. T. Joshi is famous for his Lovecraft scholarship, but is also a well known atheist. And you're, you're kind of like bookends that way. Is this a coincidence, or does Lovecraft scholarship tend once toward disbelief? My Well, I think it's part of a larger picture where, uh, though I couldn't prove this, I suspect that a huge uh, majority of fantasy and science fiction and horror buffs are atheists or agnostics. To, as Lovecraft himself said, that the idea of the fantastic is especially powerful since they don't believe in it. And it would require a big uh, imaginative suspension of disbelief. And that's what they want to do when they're reading fiction. Also, though, I think that the natural hunger people have for transcendence of the mundane either comes to them through religion or through what they know to be fantasy. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Somebody once asked Tolkien why he wrote so-called escapist fiction and he said well i don't see why we should require the prisoner to think of nothing but his four walls all day and uh, so you know you, you do need a horizon of uh, of fantasy and that's what all meaning is in my opinion we have larger brains than the animals they have an instinctive environment that they inherit uh, in many ways we have to create one a cognitive atmosphere and habitat and uh, depending on what word you want to use that is what leads us to create culture mythology and symbolism uh, and, and all of which give meaning and uh, to weave stories which we then take as models to live by and so I think meaning is fiction fiction is meaning uh, I like Jung when he says that, that hardwired into the brain are certain images uh, that uh, are presented to the consciousness in the form of religious symbols, magical symbols, fairy tales, myths, mandalas, and so on. Uh, there may not be any supernatural thing to correspond to it. I don't think there is. But we do need to connect with these uh, fantastic archetypes of the unconscious to be able to flourish as individuals. And I think atheists find this through fantasy or fiction. Other people find it through religion. Some find it through both. So I think that's the larger connection. Um, I asked ST the other day if he was influenced much by Lovecraft toward atheism. Uh, but he said, now he had never really been a believer. He was not raised with any religion where I, I was just the opposite. But uh, well, I, my problem was I just came through critical study of the history and texts of religions to believe that there was not a credible case for these miraculous uh, things having happened and that uh, probably God was a human creation, albeit a noble one. So I'm not like an anti-religionist like a lot of my atheist buddies. I, I love religion. Uh, I just don't believe that it's true in, in a factual sense. And I was going to ask you, what were Lovecraft's views on religion? Well, he thought it hung on because people needed assurance and uh, they felt properly threatened by meaninglessness in an empty cosmos. So they'd rather not think that it was empty. Uh, and uh, it is helpful for social control. And uh, depending on the kind of uh, religion you're in, it does have aesthetic satisfactions. And so he didn't he didn't think that it would be better if there were no religion. But he thought intelligent, thoughtful, thoughtful people would uh rise beyond the need and that that he had bob I, I was trying to think of where the first place i actually remember seeing a clear film reference to lovecraft and i think it was probably an evil dead um with the, hmm. the book and everything what, what are some of your favorite film uh, references to his work I like the sort of oblique tip of the hat in the ninth gate with this uh, this grimoire, the Dello Melanicon, the black book who are written by Satan himself. Uh, that That's kind of Lovecraftian with that beating to death, the familiar names and such. I like the... Um, 
Carpenter? No. Uh, oh, Joy Carpenter's The Thing? Or, you, or, or the... Oh, well, that too, yeah. And uh, I think that's great and very oh, Lovecraft. Oh, were you going with The Mouth of Madness? Yeah, that's the one I was trying to think yeah. of. Uh, both of them. Uh, one explicitly, one implicitly Lovecraft. Of course, the, the Thing is based on the Campbell story, but many think that was based on Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Anyhow, but it's certainly the same sort of stuff. I like that a lot. I, I have a great... Oh, I think this movie done by so-called amateurs a few years ago called Cthulhu based on the shadow over Innsmouth is very, very good. Um, I have a fondness for these old clinkers like the Dunwich Horror and Die Monster Die <laughs> uh, and uh, the Haunted Palace. They're great, cheesy moments in all of those. Mr. Ward, have you ever heard of the Necronomicon? Uh, and they're, they're actually more Lovecraftian than the original story, so I got a huge kick out of those. There are others like the the resurrected and a serious attempt to do Charles Dexter Ward in the modern world. I thought that was uh, not very interesting. Or the curse based on the uh, the the color out of space. I didn't care much for that either. Or this recent one, the Dunwich Horror with Jeffrey Combs as Wilbur Waitley. I thought that was awful, though not nearly as bad as Beyond the Dunwich Horror. This sickeningly terrible uh, amateur work we uh, screened up at the Lovecraft Film Festival. I'm kind of picky. The more I see of Lovecraft-related movies, the more I uh, am no longer eager to have a good one. Though I think there is still a chance. uh, Del Toro says he wants to make At the Mountains of Madness. And if he ever gets around to it, that will be a great Lovecraft movie. But uh, having seen all these things, I kind of feel like, yeah, let me just read the original stories. What the heck? But keep up the, the the attempts. I hope somebody does make a real good one. Well, I, I tried to do, um, you know, just for as a personal writing exercise, to try to do a screenplay of um, uh, The Whisper in the Darkness. Mm. And it's hard because when you take a story apart, especially Lovecraft's work, it seems that sometimes the story in your mind after having read it is – is is flows much more smoothly than the actual words on the page. Mm, mm. That, that especially that one. I mean, so much of the action is actually happening in letters, already in the past. It's, it's almost like a you know Kafka, uh, or or it's like the Metamorphosis. I, I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where the actions already happen. You know, everything's already taken place, and you're just left with the horror. You know, uh, which mm-hmm. does, doesn't really work on screen very well. Almost everything is off stage, like you say, the letters. What are you going to do with that? Uh, but also, when uh, uh, Will Marth is in the house and he wakes up and hears these uh, voices and realizes, I got to get the hell out of here, even there, you don't see what's happening. And of course, if you did, it would ruin it. Uh, so there's not that much to see. And uh, the biggest sequence would be this guy uh, driving through the, uh, the hills of Vermont, which would look nice, but you couldn't even do that for very long long and uh yeah it's very tough so they always have to add in the things lovecraft carefully omitted like characterization and action so uh, what do you got left and, uh, that is tough yeah it's been tough for me as a fan um you know i don't want to be a snob about the movies but it really is so the movies that seem to work best for me are like you say uh, the ninth gate i thought did a very nice job and i love the thing um, mm. These movies that are influenced by, but not necessarily directly derived from, yeah, Lovecraft's work. So, 
Lovecraft's, uh, he, he never quite got away from the idea of prose poetry, which he uh, learned from Dunsany. And even his uh, scientifically technical prose works in uh, like at the Mountains of Madness and The Shadow Out of Time, even they're artfully crafted in such a way that so much depends on the narration, not the story, that the whole experience is almost more like reading poetry than fiction. And that, you know, good luck making a movie out of a poem. Look at the horrible attempt of making The Raven. Oh, brother. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, I thought Night Gallery did a few nice pieces. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those. I have, but I don't remember them well enough anymore to say. They, they did uh, Cool Air and uh, they did the uh, uh, Pickman's Model. And, uh, you know, for the time, I think they did a good job. Hmm. Any, yeah, I do remember those being pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> famous game designer Sandy Peterson uh, designed a, a very influential role-playing game called Call of Cthulhu. Which is how most of the people I know actually became introduced to Lovecraft's work. Um, have you actually played those games, or have you have you seen that game or looked into it at all? I played it once or twice. I, I know I played it once because uh, my wife and I got together with uh, Chris Henderson, the great detective mystery uh, writer, and uh, Gayan Wilson, the cartoonist, uh, and played a game of it, which Gayan then reported on in the Twilight Zone magazine. And thereafter, people would uh, some people thought I must be great aficionado of this game. I, I tried it that time. I just do not care for that kind of thing. I mean. I mean, you know, all honor to those who like it, but I just would rather, if I'm going to be plotting stuff out, I'd rather just write it down as a story. But you're right. You know, I owe a great deal to this, though, because uh, I only did all those Chaosium anthologies because uh, – I believe it was the late Keith Herber came up with the idea that they had all these minions of Lovecraft gamers that wanted to know where all this stuff came from. And a lot of the fiction wasn't even in print anymore. And so we did these thematic uh, anthologies uh, that you want to know who Yogg-Sothoth is. Okay, here's the documentation. You can study the concept from the stories that influenced it to the ones Lovecraft has it in and the ones others have done. And uh, so it helped uh, bring some of the gamers into the fold and then some of them began to get into the literary side of it and dump the gaming. Uh, interesting how it evolves. Well, Bob, here's a, a final question that we like to ask all of our guests. What's your favorite monster? Ooh, uh, that's tough. I guess I would probably say uh, the Frankenstein monster. All right. <laughs> Any particular reason why? <laughs> uh, I uh, always striking in appearance and as a character, terrifying and sympathetic, monstrous and childlike, uh, almost a Christ figure. Uh, I, I love all these these old movies he's in, though I love all the universal monsters, but I guess he's really the archetypal one. The alien god Cthulhu is depicted as a cephalopod head set atop a ponderous humanoid body replete with enormous wings. Implausible, but in the context of Lovecraft's fiction, its alien weirdness is horrifically evocative. We now talk to biologist P.Z. Myers about the biology of actual cephalopods and their weird, alien, but real bodies. After all, it wouldn't be monster talk if we didn't sprinkle some science on our big bowl of horror. 
Monster Talk. So you're PZ Myers, and you're famous for your blog, Feringula. Uh-huh. You're famous for your atheism. But I understand that you also are an evolutionary biologist, and you specialize in octopuses. Uh, Not exactly. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in evolution and development. Most of my work is actually done on chordate. I work on zebrafish. Uh, but cephalopods are especially interesting if less well studied because they, they represent such a radically different body plan from what we're familiar with. But, uh, yes, True enough. Yeah, so there's been this long-term fascination with them. That's interesting. I, I, I watch a lot of science fiction movies, and I think for expediency, uh, people tend to create monsters that are anthropic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easier to put a guy in a suit if the suit looks something like a human. Yeah, um, foreheads and things like that, yeah. Right, but, but the, the body type of uh, – what, what's the right word here? I, I'm not sure what to call them. You know, so there's octopus, there's squid, there's uh, cuttlefish. They're all cephalopods. They're all cephalopods. So if you're talking about them as a group, do you say cephalopods, cephalopodia? What do you, what's the right way to say that? Well, you know, if you're pedantic, you say cephalopodia. If you're just oh, we're very pedantic. <laughs> oh, well, darn, I prefer cephalopods. But <laughs> We can say cephalopods, but I want our listeners to know that we, uh, we, 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 we understand cephalopodia is the right word. So that's cool. So, PZ, how did a, a person who has an interest in aquatic creatures end up in Minnesota? <laughs> yeah, I'm about as far from the oceans as you as you can possibly be. But um, no, it's 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 simple academic realities that there's there are a limited number of jobs out there for uh, people of my persuasion. You know, weird developmental biologists, and so you take them where you can get them. And uh, I, I happen to be at a very nice school, a very good school, which has got a, a, a very strong student body, and it's kind of place they wanted to work. So. Even though I'm far from the oceans, uh, the student party makes it worthwhile. I understand you've got to go where the jobs are. Fortunately, language is everywhere <laughs> for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you know, the animal I work on in the lab is a zebrafish, which you can raise in a tank anywhere. So, you know, that, that's very portable. Um, and then I get to travel a lot, and I get to see these cephalopods. So, wherever so I go. did you did you pick uh, zebrafish for any particular reason, like? Yeah, I, I did my thesis on them. Um, this was, I, I picked them way back in the early 1980s when they were just starting to take off as an experimental animal. I was in, I was in a lab at the University of Oregon, which was doing research on them. And, and the main appeal was, um, I'm interested in the development of the nervous system. How do, how do you make a nervous system function, all this kind of cool stuff? And uh, we started looking for organisms that have very simple nervous systems because simple is easier. And then we realized, hey, you know, if you look at really young animals, the younger you get, the smaller the nervous system is, and the more and more manageable it becomes. And zebrafish just happen to develop really, really rapidly, and they're transparent, so you can see right into the skull and all kinds of cool stuff like that. So it made it very easy to study the nervous system. Would you call them the fruit fly of the aquarium? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the fruit fly of the, of the freshwater aquarium, sure, yeah. So what are you doing with them? I mean, this is way off topic from uh, from, from Cthulhu, but... Oh, well, on. maybe not so yeah. far off topic, because the kind of work I do right now is teratogenesis. I make monsters in the lab using uh, various agents. So ah, I, cool. Yeah. That's so. what... Our, we had a recent guest that did the same thing with chickens. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and what did they use? You mean, what did they use to make the monsters? Yeah. 
you know, he just said agents. He didn't say what he was doing. He oh. said that there were different things they were doing. But it was all classified. Um, yeah, it's it's all top secret stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, mustard and secret herbs and spices is what I use in my chicken. So. <laughs> Oh, so that's where that new KFC sandwich came from. (laughs) Yeah, that's a monster. Yeah, Yes, indeed. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about Cthulhu for just a moment. So in in, in H.P. Lovecraft's work, he's got this giant creature that essentially has an octopus for a head. Uh, It has somewhat anthropic body with wings. It's not really clear. if I guess it flies through space. I'm not sure. But it's really big. So big that he describes it as a mountain walked or stumbled. That's how big it is. Huge, huge. Okay. But in real life, you know, uh, sea creatures don't get as big as that. But but octopus uh, and squid do get pretty large. How how big are these creatures? How big are they getting to these days? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to remember some of the numbers off here. Um, The giant octopus... I can easily get up to you know six to eight foot span of tentacles, and so you find those quite common. So they're they're, they're pretty good size. They can they can wrestle with a person. Uh, giant squid, of course, even bigger, many meters long. Um, but but unfortunately, contrary to most of the uh, the reputation, they're pretty placid animals. They're, they're they're deep sea creatures. They tend to live in in environments that aren't rich in resources. And so they tend to be kind of sluggish and soft and gooey. Tasty for a sperm whale, I'm sure, but uh, no, they're, they're, they're not quite the monsters they're made out to be. And I hear that uh, cephalopods are the most intelligent uh, octopi. Octopuses, octopi, what's the plural to begin with? Octopuses. <laughs> Octopuses. I hear that they're the most intelligent of all invertebrates. So how smart are these animals? Because I've seen experiments where they've opened jars to get to food. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they can unscrew jars. They can do all kinds of things. They can remember things. They, you know, they, they will cache things around their tanks and remember where they are. Um, they can pass very various kinds of um, memory tests. They recognize people and they will respond to people on the other side of the tank. They're, they're escape artists. They get all kinds of talents. Uh, they they do some spectacularly clever things. And and then the surprising thing is that their t- their brain is very tiny. This we don't understand yet. <laughs> is there a relationship yeah. between their size and their intelligence at all? Well, what do you mean a relationship? It's, it's like it's like with vertebrates. There doesn't seem to be much of a relationship. You can look at a gray whale or you can look at a human being. A gray whale has a brain that's two or three times larger than ours, uh, but I don't think they're as smart as we are, unless it's just that they're keeping quiet. Uh Mm. Yeah, but th- th- there's a really poor correlation there. And in particular, when you look at something like uh, an octopus, their brain is, is a small ganglion, and it's basically ra- wrapped around their esophagus. And wow. when you look at it, it's got a relatively small number of neurons in it, you know, compared to ours, but you know, still a reasonable number. Uh, so it seems like they, they're doing a lot with very little impressive stuff. Wow. Mm. Their brains wrapped around their esophagus. Yes. Yeah. Uh, most invertebrates have a ventral nerve cord. So, you know, we have a dorsal nerve, spinal cord that goes up down our back. Uh, their nervous system tends to run down the ventral side, uh, right there where the esophagus is also located. And the primary ganglion is actually wrapped around, 
is it's just kind of neat too. When they when they eat, you know, they eat, they when they chew up a big chunk of something and pass it through their throat, uh, it, it's actually compressing the brain a bit. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not that surprising. I mean, I, I think part of my brain's in my stomach and parts in my pants, based on my food. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, <laughs> so the distributed brains, yeah, yeah. So, does it affect them to eat? Then, uh, does it affect their I brain? No, you would you, think it would. You know, if, if in, in, you know, if you do something, put pressure on the brain, you can you can get responses. You know, these kinds of cognitive responses and, and visual hallucinations and so forth. So, you know, I always imagine when, a, when an octopus is eating, it's seeing stars as things flash by its throat. But we don't know. They also have spectacular eyes, too, don't they? So. They have very good eyes, yeah, large eyes. They're very visual sorts of animals. In a lot of ways, the eyes are, are better than ours. And they're not inside out like ours are, for instance. So do they see the same way we do, or is it somewhat different? It's somewhat different. I mean, the, the general plan of the eyeball is very similar in that they've got collections of photoreceptor cells, just like we do. They have a retina. Um, they have a, a distributed nerve net that's leaving the eyeball at the back, so there's no single optic nerve. Uh, the photoreceptors are in the front instead of the back, like they are in us. Uh, Visual processing, they've got ganglia that, that handle a lot of the, the, the brain power of, of figuring out what the visual world is saying. That's separate from the, the subosophageal ganglion, for instance. So, they, yeah, they're fairly sophisticated. They can do a lot with their eyes. Now, they, they, um, a lot of them change color. So is it safe to assume they can also see color? Yes, they can. So they've got lots and lots of photoreceptors. They have very good color vision. Well, you know, I should say, it's good color vision for them, uh, but often what you find is color vision in aquatic animals is tuned for the environment. Uh, that because, you know, the water filters light in particular ways, you find a different distribution of photoreceptors than you would in us. Do they see in the same spectrum as we do, or is it shifted, or do you know? Uh, I'm not sure. It, it's probably shifted a little bit, but not much. That, that 400 to 800 nanometer range that we use is, is pretty universal. Now, did they start off in the water from an evolutionary perspective? or? Did... Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. Just like we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All animals started out, uh, you know, their, their distant ancestors all evolved in, in the ocean many hundreds of millions of years ago. So, yeah. They, they, they arose from creatures that were probably more uh, slug-like. Most of what we regard as, as unique to the cephalopods, you know, that big, that big ruff of tentacles and so forth, uh, all is a modified foot. But you have to kind of imagine a slug, and just the base of that slug gets expanded and branches into tentacles. And, and that becomes the tentacle end of, end of the animal. And then that big head that you see back there, that's actually not, that's actually not a head. That's, that's a big bag of guts. That's where its abdomen and its intestines and all that kind of stuff are located. Wow. The creationists don't want to hear that. <laughs> oh, the creationists don't want to hear that. I, I, I don't think I wanted to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, well, we can eat the, have you ever cleaned them? I mean, if, if you work with squid or octopus for dinner sometime and you get to clean them, uh, that that big head part, the mantle part, is is basically a bag of guts, and you just have to scoop everything out of there, throw it away. Well, so do you do you eat the what is that called the, um, the mantle? Oh, I know that. <laughs> the food version. I was thinking it was, it was the, the head of the squid was called. I think it was called the mantle, if yeah, I remember mantle, correctly. But right. uh, the, the, uh, do, do you uh, you eat that part too? I thought it was just the legs we were eating. I, I, oh no, no, I eat a lot of calamari. We eat calamari, you know, it's rings, and basically yeah. what that is is the mantle, which is a hollow tube, which has been sliced up into rings. Okay. Yeah. Do you eat them? Yeah. yeah. Do I eat? No, just PZ. Yeah, I know. I yeah. Sure, sure, I love them. They're, they're delicious. <laughs> yeah, they're they're great breaded with salt and pepper. I think that's a you know, uh-huh. deep fry. We fry everything in the south. So, I mean, you know, they they, fry, they sell fried pickles down here. They sell everything's fried. So, oh. um, yeah, I know, I know. Sweet tea and fried pickles. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What's the relationship between the squid, the octopus, and the cuttlefish? Like, is one of them more uh, like a recent development than the others, or they just kind of? Brand- I mean, what? What drove those evolutionary changes, do you think? Oh, well, they have different lifestyles, for what I mean. Um, an octopus, from, most octopus are um, benthic animals. That means they live at the bottom. They, so they cling to the shores. They live uh, in, the, in the bottom of the rocks and the weeds and things like that. Uh, squid tend to be deep water, apologic, and uh, they're, they're specialized for swimming, although, of course, there are variations. There's some some squid that, that hover down in the bottom and digging the sand for food. Um, but, yeah, basically there was a big split many hundreds of millions of years ago, uh, largely into the eight-armed octopuses and, and the ten-armed squid. Uh, the ten-armed condition is primitive, and so octopus are derived. They're, they're the specialized form that arose later. So do the do the really large squid and, and giant octopuses do they, do they use ink? Yes, it, it, it's a very common trait that they have. And I understand that some versions, I guess, even one of the most toxic animals in the world is actually an, uh, an octopus. I think it's the, the, the blue ring. Uh, yeah, but they, their their skin contains these um, toxins, in particular neurotoxins. That's why they're so lethal to go. They go right to your nervous system and fry things. So, is that, but is that normal for octopus, or is that just specialized for that one species? Uh, it's it's fairly common among invertebrates, actually. That lots of them produce this thing. You know, for instance, tetrodotoxin, which is a common nerve poison that they make. Uh, it, it's rare for them to make it in such large volumes that the the animal itself is entirely toxic. There are a number of wow. cephalopods, though, that secrete quantities of these poisons. Uh, right around the beak. So if they bite you, it can be quite painful. It can actually poison you that way. Uh, many of them just trust in the fact that uh, there's all kinds of filthy bacteria lurking there, and they can uh, essentially induce sepsis in their target by biting into them. Yeah, we have those in Australia. I've seen them on the beach, along with hypodermic needles and condoms. I had, so the, they have a drug problem? There's a lot of drug issue. No, I've seen them on the sand and blue bottles and things. So, Well, at least they're using safe uh, sex. That's the important oh, yeah. thing. That's right. <laughs> Australia sounds like a dangerous place. I don't, I'm don't. i not so sure I want to it go is. there. It's like, it's, 
Your animals scare me as well. Yes. Oh, do they? Well, okay. Well, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Mountain lions and bears. I always say oh, that. Oh, lions and tigers and bears. And tree alligators. Yeah. Tree alligators are a oh, real yeah. threat, but not so much in Colorado. Yeah. Still haven't seen one. I yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> You're not looking up. <laughs> so, what's the fossil record like for these creatures? It doesn't seem like much would be around. Um, it, it's not great because, of course, they're soft-bodied. There's there's very little that can be preserved. But no, they found uh, some specimens that are hundreds of millions of years old. They're rare. Uh, you got to have really good preservation to to protect something that's soft-bodied from immediate decay. But yeah, there's a few there's a few really cool fossils that have been discovered that show all the octopuses, for instance, haven't changed that much in a couple hundred million years. So they survived the uh, the uh, KT extinction. Interesting. Oh yes, yeah. Well, they're they're aquatic, and in general, invertebrates are so profligate in producing offspring that they're really good at surviving these sorts of things. Going going back to eating these creatures, uh, I was told that the giant squid have too much ammonia uh, in them to be edible. Why is that? Right. Oh, many of the squid that live in, in midwater that you know that hover deep in the water, um, they use ammonia for buoyancy. So oh. they saturate the tissues to give them a, a neutral buoyancy. Yeah, because it's it's lighter than water. Wow. That's basically the strategy they're following. Uh, so yeah, they're they're kind of inedible unless you soak them for a long time, and even then, uh, by by that time, they're mush. Who wants to eat that? So why do you think so many people are frightened of these tentacled animals? Oh, it's it's the weirdness of them. It's, it's that they look so un, unusual and, uh, and different. That, um, you know, for instance, where is the face of an octopus? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know Not if its brains wrapped around its esophagus. <laughs> yeah. We're so used to looking at creatures, you know, whether, you know, whether it's a dog or a tiger or a bear or whatever, whatever you're afraid of. But at least you can see a face. You can see there's eyes, there's a nose, there's a mouth. And we can we can fit them into a mental model of, of that's what an animal should look like. Something like a squid, you don't. You can look into it and you can see two eyes there. Then below that, uh, there's this confusing mass of tentacles just branching everywhere. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons Lovecraft sort of seized on that imagery for his... Whereas Cthulhu is, it's it's so different than what we expect. It, it looks pathologically weird. And probably because of the toxicity of these creatures too. Well, I, I didn't even know about that really, but that's just me. But well, yeah, coming from Australia, oh, yeah, no I certainly knew about that. Totally oh. yeah. Yeah. yeah, but everything is toxic in Australia. Like, <laughs> have you tried fossils? Including me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The, the uh... yeah, I, I think it's just the, the the visual impact of the animal that it's it's a mm-hmm. the creature that's just organized so differently from the way we are that that you get confused, you get baffled in looking, at it. and that's that's one of the things that, that Lovecraft really tried to get across in his his in his crazy writings is the idea of things that you cannot grass that you look at and you see and they drive you mad because they're so different from everything you're used to. And I, I think a cephalopod fits that category pretty well. I think so too. Mm-hmm. Well, one more, at least one more question. What, what, what is your fascination with them? I notice you've got them as your wallpaper uh, on Feringula. So. <laughs> um, 
Well, as I mentioned earlier on, they, they have such a very different body plan from ours yeah. that one of the things I'm, I'm always interested in my own work is, is how do you lay out the blueprint of an animal? In, in vertebrates, we've got a good idea that, for instance, there are these things called Hox genes that are expressed early on, and, and they sort of stake out the foundation of the animal. You know, they say, this is the front end, this is the back end, uh, this is the stuff in the middle. And when you look at a cephalopod, it breaks all the rules. It's, it's not a simple linear organism anymore. It's got this kind of radial organization of its tentacles. So I'm, I'm really curious to know how exactly, in a molecular sense, do they set up that pattern? Uh, what, what kind of genes are they using to do this sort of stuff? Well, we know so, some of the answers. We, we know that they are using the Hox genes, the same Hox genes that we use to set up pattern along the longitudinal axis. Yeah. Uh, they're using in a weird combinatorial scheme to set up the identities of each tentacle. So can you make tentacles grow in different places if you change the genes around? Well, theoretically, yeah. That, um, They've worked out the sort of the Hox code for a tentacle, so you know, you know which Hox genes are turned on for which tentacle. And if, if uh, cephalopods were better experimental animals for molecular biology, and they aren't, they're really hard to raise, uh, then theoretically, yeah, we could go in there, we could do some tinkering. Every once in a while, um, a cephalopod will wash up that is strange, different, and it looks like it's a mutant of some sort. And, and usually the dead, so it hasn't survived. For instance, there was one a couple of years ago that was very exciting because it actually had bifurcating tentacles. Wow. Each tentacle branched and branched and branched. So we know there's also interesting stuff going on in the regulation of the growth. Of the What's the cause of that when that happens? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what's kind of neat about it. Um, you know, in vertebrates, we, we, we know how you regulate the branching pattern that we get in our hands, you know, the form of the fingers. And again, it's Hox genes uh, switching on particular patterns. And in, in these, you know, the, this was just a one-off sort of thing, an odd specimen that washed up. Uh, we suspect it's probably something similar, but there's misexpression of certain genes that regulate um, these patterned expressions. But we don't have it as an experimental animal, so we can't the experiments. It's, it's kind of frustrating. Wow. But cool. Anyway. But yeah, very cool. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's kind of funny because not like ha ha funny, but, you know, we talked to Dr. Marcus Davis, who's uh, at my local university in Kennesaw, and he was talking about some of the things they can do and what controls uh, there are for making, you know, genetic manipulation. And and I'm torn, you know, as a, as a lay person, because you know, on the one hand, I understand you don't want to be cruel to the animals. But on the other hand, you know, making an octopus with 24 tentacles sounds cool, you know. <laughs> and what are the implications for humans? Right. When can I have tentacles? Exactly, Karen. Thank you. Mm. Not enough people ask that. That's what you were thinking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's also just a way to look into the you know, the fundamental aspects of, of organization of, of matter. How, how does life get to be this way? And, and so doing these kinds of experiments are essential for understanding what's going on there. Like I said, you know, we've got these little examples, like that, that octopus with the bifurcating tentacles, and it's so provocative. We want to know how that worked. We want to know what are the rules for branching in a tentacle. Yeah. And in order to figure that, you've got to do experiments. I'm sorry. Yeah, you got to. But, you know, it, it's, it's, still, it's still no worse than chopping them up. And well, that, them. that was my thought, exactly. I mean, I, I, nothing personal against the chickens, but... 
although you have to have these ethical sign-offs for for doing the experiments, I can go to KFC and get yeah. my uh, you know chicken on a chicken you know cheese sandwich or whatever. <laughs> right. So see. yeah, and most of these experiments you can do in in far more humane ways than even farming takes care of animals because we're not interested in causing them harm. We're not, not interested so much in uh, ripping them to pieces and putting their flesh on a plate so you can eat it. Uh, so we can do things like very carefully anesthetize, monitor, uh, we, we euthanize if there's any sign of stress. So yeah, we, most scientists are pretty darn ethical about this sort of thing. Okay. Well, we have a sort of a mandatory question we ask all of our guests. Um, and that is, what is your favorite monster? Oh, well, gee, uh... (laughs) <laughs> so many of them like a cryptozoological no could be anything or... you want it to be I mean uh, the, the last one we had was a any anomaly mouse. <laughs> yeah you just wanted to say that you know the, I, I, I hate to say it because I don't think of it really as a monster but vampire toothless is pretty darn cool oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah absolutely yeah no. the, the, <laughs> Vampire Toothless Infernalis is, is uh, it's a deep water squid. It's wicked cool. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's, it's very creepy looking. It lives way down in the darkness. Uh, it's got these, these tentacles that are bridged by, uh, by webbing and so forth. Um, and it, it's, you have to see pictures on this. I'll shoot, I'll shoot here in a picture. We'll put a picture in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. It sounds monstrous enough to me. The eyes, though. They don't have eyelids. Instead, the skin around the eye just kind of uh, irises shut around them. Wow. And it's bizarre to see. It's it's just, again, so alien-looking to see that. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, PZ. I appreciate it. Oh, my Thank you, PZ. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this special literary edition of Monster Talk. I enjoy putting the show together. And if you enjoy listening to it, let us know. Today we heard about American cosmic horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. Our guests were Robert M. Price and P.Z. Myers. Your hosts were myself, Blake Smith, Ben Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolzno. As I put this show together, I had envisioned interviewing S.T. Joshi, the biographer of Lovecraft we mentioned during the show. However, Bob Price effectively conducted the exact interview I wanted over at Point of Inquiry. So as an adjunct to this episode, I suggest you check it out. A link is in our show notes. Also... While I was putting this together, a paper was published on the evolutionary basis for cephalopod pseudopods. The CB show Quirks and Quarks did an excellent interview with the PhD candidate Martin Smith on his findings. It's a great interview, and I've put that link in the show notes. Monster Talk is produced with the assistance of Skeptic Magazine. When the stars are right, Cthulhu will rise and destroy us all! In the meantime, why not relax and enjoy a nice read of Skeptic? You might gain one die ten sanity. No promises on that. Music for today's episode included Monster Talk's theme by Peach Stealing Monkeys, 1000 PSI, A.R. Morgan, and now, by special permission, a snippet of a most excellent song by the Eben Brooks Band, Hey There Cthulhu. Hey there Cthulhu, down there in your sunken city, you're a billion light years distant and the stars look very pretty from relay. So close and yet so far away, ee ah ee 
for Toggin, or is that Cthulhu for Tyne? I can never quite remember, cause I'm not in my right mind since I met you. No one corrupts the way you do, you know it's true. Oh, it's what you'll do to me, oh, and all humanity. Oh, you'll rise up from the sea, oh, kill everyone slowly, except the ones like me. Hungry for more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. (laughs) 